0: when i was a child i had a a terrible fear of snakes and not just any snakes the snakes that lived under my bed the snakes that for some unknown reason only ever came out at night when the bedroom light was switched off this of course led to the dilemma each night of how to turn the light off and get into bed without the snakes first coming out and biting me a dilemma i tried to overcome each night by taking a, a giant leap from the light switch across the bedroom over onto to the safety of the bed. A leap that was sometimes successful, but more often than not led to a nasty bump on my head. Now, of course, the problem with irrational fear like that is that it makes you anxious when you have no reason to be. And it causes you to take unnecessary and possibly harmful actions. It's not based on reality. It's a bad fear. On the other hand, rational fear, like the fear of being struck by lightning while holding a large golf umbrella on top of a hill during a thunderstorm, is actually a good fear. It is the kind of fear that perceives reality correctly and prompts a wise person to take appropriate action dumping the umbrella and getting down the hill as quickly as you possibly can. It's a good fear. But what about the fear of God? As a Christian, is it rational or irrational to fear God? Now, I'm not just talking about reverence or respect here. I'm talking about fear, real, genuine fear. Would that be good fear or bad fear? Well, that's the question that I want us to think about this morning. And we're going to do that by once again turning our attention to the book of Deuteronomy, beginning at the end of chapter 4, which you can find on page 129 of the small print, 281 of the large print Bibles. That's Deuteronomy, chapter 4. While you're looking that up, let me remind you that the events of Deuteronomy are set just outside the promised land, on the east side of the Jordan River, during the days of Moses. Soon, they'll cross over and for the very first time, settle down as a nation in the land God has promised them. But remember, just 40 years earlier, things were very, very different. They weren't a nation at all. They were living as slaves in someone else's country, Egypt. But then, God rescued them. He brought them out of Egypt led them through the Red Sea. He gave them his good laws. Then for the next 40 years, he cared for them through the wilderness, defeating their enemies along the way. And now he has brought them here to the edge of the promised land. But before they enter, Moses has some important things to say to make sure that they understand how they're to now live as God's people in the promised land. Here, read with me from Deuteronomy, chapter 4, verse 44. Chapter 4, verse 44. This is the law Moses set before the Israelites. These are the stipulations, decrees and laws Moses gave them when they came out of Egypt and were in the valley near Beth Peor, east of the Jordan, that is, right on the edge of the Promised Land. In the land of Sion, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon and was defeated by Moses and the Israelites as they came out of Egypt... They took possession of his land and the land of Og, king of Bashan, the two Amorite kings east of the Jordan. This land extended from Aroah on the rim of the Anan Gorge to Mount Sion, that is Hermon, and included all the Arabah east of the Jordan, as far as the sea of the Arabah, below the slopes of Pisgah. And so, here they are, right on the edge of the promised land. But before they go in, Moses goes over the laws there to follow once they cross the river. The laws themselves formed the basis of a covenant between the Israelites and God. Now, a covenant, of course, is a promise or an agreement between two parties uh, detailing how they are to relate to one another. So, for example, marriage is a covenant. It contains promises uh, to have and to hold for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. But here... The covenant is an agreement between God and the Israelites, made just after he rescued them from Egypt. It was there at Mount Sinai, or Horeb as it's also called, that God first gave the Israelites his laws and invited them to enter into covenant with him. At that time, the Israelites agreed to do so. They promised to obey God's laws and God promised to bless them, whatever they did. And now here on the edge of the Promised Land, Moses reminds these second-generation Israelites of the covenant their parents made with God 40 years earlier. But interestingly, Moses speaks to them as though they themselves were present at Mount Sinai, despite the fact that many of them hadn't even been born yet. Why does he do this? Well, because the covenant was binding for all future generations. And so they too are now in covenant with the same fearsome God that their parents committed to follow 40 years earlier. And so Moses reminds the Israelites of the the frightening spectacle back at Mount Sinai, how the whole mountain was ablaze, like like a huge erupting volcano, and how God's voice thundered from out of the fire. All in all, it was an utterly terrifying experience. Here, read with me from Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 1. Deuteronomy chapter 5, from verse 1. Moses summoned all Israel and said, Hear, O Israel, the decrees and laws I declare in your hearing. Learn them and be sure to follow them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb, Mount Sinai. It was not with our fathers that the Lord made this covenant. That is, I think it was not with our fathers alone that the Lord made this covenant, but with us too, with us, all of us who are alive here today. The Lord spoke to you face to face out of the fire on the mountain. At that time, I stood between the Lord and you to declare to you the word of the Lord because... You were afraid of the fire, did not go up on the mountain. See, their parents experienced God's holy, terrifying presence at Mount Sinai. And now Moses, as Moses prepares to go over the law with this new generation, he wants them to feel something of that terror for themselves. So that they'll now listen and obey. And so now here Moses recounts how back at fiery Mount Sinai, God's voice boomed out the Ten Commandments. One, I'm the Lord your God who, who saved you, so don't you go worshipping other gods. Two, don't you dare replace me with some kind of idol made out of stone or wood. You, you do that, there'll be big trouble. Three, don't ever misuse my name, treating it lightly without respect. Four, don't work on the Sabbath. From sunset Friday to sunset Saturday, don't work but rest. Not just you, but everyone in your household too. Five, honour your parents, respect them, care for them. Six, Don't murder anyone. Human life is sacred. Protect it. Seven. Don't commit adultery. Sex must only happen between a man and a woman who are married to each other. Eight. Don't steal. It's not yours. Don't take it. Nine. Don't falsely testify against your neighbour, telling lies about other people. Just tell the truth. And finally, 10, don't covet, don't want things that belong to other people, but be happy and thankful for what you've got. Here, let me read to you the 10 booming commandments from verse 6. Actually, as I read this, maybe you'd even like to close your eyes and, and just imagine the scene, uh, you know, blazing mountain, God's voice like thunder from verse 6. And God said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall not, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labour and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your ox, your donkey, or any of your animals, nor the alien within your gates, so that your manservant and maidservant may rest, as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Honour your father and your mother, as the Lord your God has commanded you, so that you may live long, and that it may go well with you in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbour, you shall not covet your neighbour's wife, you shall not set your desire on your neighbour's house or land, his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbour. And then Moses goes on in verse 22. These are the commandments the Lord proclaimed in a loud voice to your whole assembly there on the mountain from out of the fire, the cloud, and and the deep darkness. And he added nothing more. Then he wrote them on two stone tablets and gave them to me. How scary, hey? Couldn't you imagine? What a a scary, scary experience it must have been. In fact, Moses reminds the Israelites that those there at that time were so frightened that they actually begged him to go and deal with God for them so that they wouldn't have to stand there and listen anymore. They were terrified. Terrified that they, mere sinful mortals stood in the presence of the almighty, all-knowing, majestic, glorious, holy God. Terrified that the flames from God's presence would flare up at any moment and consume them all. But interestingly, as they begged Moses to go and receive the rest of the laws for them, they also gave their word that they would obey whatever God said to do. And interestingly, when Moses did go to speak with God on their behalf, God was actually pleased with their fear. Pleased. Because he knew that that fear would motivate them to obey him. In fact, God's great desire was that all future generations would also fear him. That they too might obey him. That then all might go well with them in the land. he read with me the final part of today's passage from verse 23. Verse 23. When you heard the voice out of the darkness, while the mountain was ablaze with fire, all the leading men of your tribes and your elders came to me and you said, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and his majesty and we have heard his voice from the fire. Today we have seen that a man can live even if God speaks with him. But now, why should we die? This great fire will consume us and we will die if we hear the voice of the Lord our God any longer. For what mortal man has ever heard the voice of the living God speaking out of fire as we have and survived? Go near and listen to all the Lord our God says. Then tell us whatever the Lord our God tells you. We will listen and obey. The Lord heard you when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I have heard what this people said to you. Everything they said was good. Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me. And keep all my commands always so that it might go well with them and their children forever go tell them to return to their tents but you stay here with me so that i may give you all the commands decrees and laws you are to teach them to follow in the land i am giving them to possess so be careful moses now says to the second generation israelites so be careful To do what the Lord your God has commanded you. Do not turn aside to the right or to the left. Walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, so that you may live and prosper and prolong your days in the land that you will possess. And so there on the edge of the promised land, Moses goes over the laws that the Israelites must obey when they cross the Jordan River beginning with the Ten Commandments. And in the process, Moses attempts to to put the fear of God into these Israelites, so that they will obey his commands. And that's today's passage from Deuteronomy. But it makes you wonder, doesn't it? Why did God choose to speak to the Israelites in the way that he did here at Mount Sinai? I mean, the fact is, God could have spoken to them in any way that he wanted. He could have spoken to them through an angel or, or through a prophet or, or even through another burning bush. But no, God chooses here to thunder out his laws from nothing less than an entire mountain on fire. But why? Why? Well, I think, obviously, God is trying to put fear into these Israelites. When he does, he's pleased. Why? Because he knows that while ever they fear him, they will obey him. So what? So what then? Do we see here that God is nothing more than some some cosmic bully? You know, throwing his weight around... Trying to scare people into compliance. Is that it? Is is God here nothing more than a cosmic bully? Well, no, I don't think that's what's going on here at all. See, a bully scares people out of selfish motives. But here, God is actually out for the good of these people. Because he is a fearsome God, yes. But he's also a loving God. And here he's being both at once. Here, let me see if I can explain. When I want to stop my two-year-old son running out onto a busy road, as as occasionally he sets out to do, the fact is I want him to fear me. to, To fear me enough to obey me. And so as he's running towards that busy road, I'm not like, oh, oh Danny darling, no, don't, don't keep running towards the traffic. No, you come back here, sweetie. No, no don't come... On. No. I'm like, Danny, stop! Thou shalt not <laughs> go onto a busy road without holding Daddy's hand. Now, am I trying to bully him? Of course not. I'm doing that because I love him. I yell and I jump up and down and I wave my arms around wildly because I want his attention. I want him to know that this is serious. That this really matters. I want him to fear me. But ultimately for his good. Because I love him. And so it was there at Mount Sinai. God was happy that the people feared him. Remember the reason he gave? That it might go well for them and their children forever. See, the laws God gave these Israelites were actually good for them. And if the people followed them, their lives and society would be so much better. See, not wasting your time on false gods is actually a good thing. Not murdering is a good thing. Not stealing is a good thing. Honouring your parents is a good thing. Not sleeping around is a good thing. God didn't give the Israelites these laws to hurt them or to bully them but to help them, because he knew that sin ruins lives. And so he's quite pleased when they fear him enough to trust and obey him. See, so do you see here why the fear of God is actually a good fear? Because it, because it fosters obedience. And so it spares people the ruin That sinful choices bring in their lives. But then I think there's something else going on here too, something much bigger. As God lights up that mountain with fire and thunders out his laws to the Israelites, he's also revealing to them who he is. That he is the holy God who will not tolerate sin That's why they didn't want to stand there and listen any longer because they realised that they were unclean sinners who might as well have stood before that blazing mountain doused in kerosene. You see, God chose to reveal himself in this intimidating way to show the Israelites the great problem that that they and, and all people have, the problem of sin. In fact, the law itself was given to highlight this very problem beyond a shadow of doubt. See, God didn't give the old covenant law because he thought that the people could keep it perfectly. On the contrary, he gave it to show them that they could not. To help them see that they were sinful people in need of a saviour, in need of Jesus. Jesus, the one who at the cross took upon himself the terrible judgment reserved for sinners, facing it so that they would never have to. In his death, offering a new covenant, a, 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 a new agreement, not just with the Israelites, but with all people everywhere, that all who now put their trust, their faith in him might be forgiven of their sin and considered righteous in the eyes of God. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 3, when he says, through the law, we become conscious of sin. But now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. See, the reality is that we are all sinners and that makes meeting the Holy God a terrifying prospect for all of us. But that fear is a rational fear. It's a good fear. Like the fear that you have when you're holding a large golf umbrella on top of a hill in the middle of a thunderstorm. It's a good fear because it's a fear that perceives reality correctly and so leads you to respond appropriately. And what is the appropriate response to this fear of God? Well, ironically, it's not a, a matter of running away from God, but rather running to Him. Of coming to Jesus and putting our trust in Him and His finished work at the cross, finding forgiveness of sin in Him. And being reconciled to God, who then gives us his own spirit. And how that changes things. As the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8 For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. And so, do you see the irony? We fear God, and so we run to Him. And it's then that we have no more reason to fear. I guess that's what John Newton had in mind when he wrote that line in his famous hymn, Amazing Grace. Do you know the line I'm talking about? What does it say? "Twas grace, Twas grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. Oh, the irony. Unfortunately, some Christians live with the, the constant fear that God's patience with them will eventually run out. They're just waiting for the axe to finally fall when at last God realises just how pathetically hopeless they really are. But you know, friends, that, 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 that is an irrational fear. Like my fear of snakes under the bed... Christian, the fact is God loves you and He's so thoroughly on your side. He's given you His Son. He's given you His Spirit. You are His dearly loved child and when you come to Him for mercy, He will forgive you again and again again, and again, and again, and again, and again. And so you need not fear. And so it is that the fear of God motivates us to obey God's good commands. But it's also the fear of God that motivates us to humbly repent and seek forgiveness in Jesus when we fail to obey. Do you see? And it's these two aspects of of obedience, repentance, obedience, repentance that should now mark the rest of our lives as Christians. Obedience, repentance, obedience, repentance, both motivated by the fear of God. But not a fear that crushes and condemns, but rather a a fear that liberates and brings freedom. It, it, it's a good fear. The big problem, however, comes when this cycle breaks down and 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 we stop fearing God. When we refuse to obey one of his commandments. When we refuse to repent of a particular sin. So we deceive ourselves into thinking, oh, it's not really any big deal. We harden our hearts against the Spirit's convicting voice. But the Bible is clear when that happens we have a lot to fear in hebrews chapter 10 we read if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth no sacrifice for sins is left but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of god Friends, God is as fearsome today as he was there at Mount Sinai. And he will not be mocked. So we must never, ever deliberately keep on sinning whilst presuming upon his grace. I dare say that there will be times when each and every one of us here today need to hear this warning... And tremble to have the fear of God put back into us once again that we might realise what's at stake and, and, and so race back to Jesus and to the safety of, the, of that pattern once again, repentance, obedience repentance, obedience so let me ask you how are you going with repentance and obedience in your life well to finish very briefly Let's think about it, shall we? And and perhaps we can think about it in terms of the the Ten Commandments, which we saw today. Now, of course, as Christians, we're not bound to the old covenant laws as the Israelites were. But then it probably shouldn't surprise us that that all of the original Ten Commandments are are, are actually reapplied to us Christians. They're in the New Testament, that is, the New Covenant Now, it's true that uh, resting on the Sabbath is no longer required of us in quite the same way, that now it has more of a a, a symbolic meaning as we find our rest in Jesus and His salvation. But all the others still stand. So, here we go. Here's a little test for you. You ready? Uh, On the remaining nine commandments, think about it. Think about each one. Take this seriously. Here we go, number one, number one worship God alone? Are are you worshipping God alone? Is he the only one in your life you're worshipping or, or, or is there something or someone else that you're looking to for significance in your life? Have you let some idol perhaps crowd God out of first place in your life? Perhaps an idol perhaps money or some other idol? Do you use God's name lightly? OMG? Oh, God. Are you failing to honour your parents? Have you murdered someone? An unborn baby, perhaps? Or, as Jesus interpreted this command, is there someone you hate in your heart? Are you having an affair? Sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend? Or as Jesus interpreted this command, are you lustful? Looking at porn? Do you steal from the tax man? From the office? Do you tell lies about other people? There's something you're coveting, wanting the house or job or husband or wife or child or lifestyle, someone else. Well, friend, if you answered yes to any of these, then know that your heavenly Father is now calling out for you to stop, to come away from the, the busy and deadly road of sin. And to come back to the safety of his loving arms. Don't play around with sin, friend. It'll ruin your life and it'll send you to hell. Rather, fear God, repent and obey, and then, ironically, fear no more. Let's pray. Holy God, we come before you now acutely aware of our sin and our unworthiness to receive anything from you but your condemnation. And yet, Father, you promised that all who seek mercy in your son Jesus will freely receive it. And so, Father, we turn from our sin now and we run to you in faith. Father, please give us a healthy fear of you. One that leads us to repent of sin and leads us to obey you every day of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.